0: All right, Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. Let's give our attention to God's word. Uh, it says, And when he had said these things, Jesus, of course, and when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people. We're hanging on his words. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all of mankind's glory is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and flowers fade away. But God's word stands forever. Now let me pray for us before we talk about it more tonight. Heavenly Father, your word stands forever. And so we need you, Father, to... We need you to be at work. We need your word to do uh, what it says it will do, to go out and accomplish its purposes. So, Father, would that happen tonight? Would you be here by your Holy Spirit? Would you be at work in spite of my weakness as the speaker, in spite of all of our weakness as hearers? Father, we need to hear from you. And so we pray that that would happen tonight and that we would be changed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, anybody happen to know what event took place on January twentieth of this year, January twentieth, twenty twenty-one? Any? What's that? What? Oh, come on. The inauguration, very well done. It's the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Uh, inaugurations, you almost certainly know, happen every four years. They're a much bigger deal when it's a new president coming in, um, but it's a time. It, it's the time that it becomes official that that this person is president. That this person who holds the highest office in the land, uh, they take an oath about what they promise to do. Then they make a. They give a speech about what their uh, time as president is going to look like. Uh, there's a lot of, of fanfare and celebration. There's uh, Uh, Whether they have, there's a parade, there's a ball, there is a a, a luncheon, uh, a prayer service, evidently. There are all sorts of things that that surround this event. But it really all boils down to one thing, and it's this person is president. Everything about it the ball, the prayer service, the speech, the parties, all of it, it's all centered around the idea. This person's president. And while it is certainly far from a perfect parallel, uh, I, I tell you that because what we see in this passage is, of a sort, an inauguration. Um, at, at least along the lines uh, that, that everything about this passage boils down to Jesus is king. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, It's not an inauguration in that this is when Jesus officially begins to reign. But it does seem to be, uh, Jesus seems to be showing himself to be the king in a a particular way. And so this semester, you know, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke and we're almost come to the end. And Luke is very much trying to, to get to the bottom of who Jesus was and is. And in our passage tonight, what we see is that that Jesus is king. So back in uh, Luke nine, Luke nine fifty one in particular, there's this real turning point in the gospel. Uh, nine fifty one, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and everything really shifts from there on. So everything from then on, it's all about him heading to Jerusalem, and. Uh, in this passage that we have before us tonight is his arrival at Jerusalem. So for whatever, 10 chapters, Jesus has been heading there and now he's coming into Jerusalem. And he makes his entrance in such a way, uh, in a very particular way, that it's clear that he's claiming to be the king. Uh, that, That he's the Messiah, the chosen hero king that God had promised. And we see that at least in part and sort of primarily by him riding in on a donkey. Um, the, uh, one of the other gospels tells us that that's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, uh, uh, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's also clear that the crowd understood it, to, understood Jesus to be doing that, at least to some degree understood it. Uh, what they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 18. So tonight, what we're going to look at is what this passage I think is showing us is that Jesus is king. So we're going to look at, so what kind of king is he? look at three things. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the sovereign king. Secondly, that he is the caring king. And thirdly, and this is all one one point, that he is the working, restoring, and purifying king. All right, so first, Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus wants to make this a particular, he wants to make his entrance into Jerusalem in a very particular way to show that he's king. And the text really goes out of its way to show, uh, to show us the details of how this comes about. And, and I think one thing overall is clear that it's all orchestrated by Jesus, that he's in charge of all of these details coming together. And it's not just that He's in charge. It's his agenda. He's setting the agenda. It's, it's way bigger than that. Uh, look at the, at the end of verse 29. Jesus sends two disciples, and he tells them to go into this specific village, and that there's going to be a colt tied up there, a certain place. And if anybody asks them what, untie it, bring it here. If anybody asks you about it, just say, the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, they go and find everything just like Jesus said it would be. And as they're untying the colt, the owners of the colt ask, what are you doing that for? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And that was good with them. And everything about it went just like Jesus had said it would. But I want you to think about that for a minute. Can you imagine being one of those two disciples as you're you're heading, walk into this little village? I mean, certainly you had to be a little nervous about this, at least. Like, I I mean, is it? Because we, we haven't come from this village or, or are we really going to find a colt tied up there? And, and if we do, if we don't, what do we do? But if, even if we do, are we just going to untie it and take it? Like what if somebody finds us? Are they going to beat us up? Are we going to get arrested? What? And so maybe you're just hoping like, all right, look, we'll do it. Maybe nobody will, uh, maybe nobody will see. If they see, maybe nobody will really pay any attention to us. And sure enough, you know, they hear, hey, what do you got? What are you? What are you doing? And you, I mean, you have to know in that moment, it's like, oh man, because I'm about to say, uh, God needs it, <laughs> and they do. They say, what are you doing? He says uh, the, the Lord needs it, and they're like, all right, yeah. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, who, that just doesn't, you know, on the face of it, make a whole lot of sense. Imagine if somebody came into your house or your dorm room and was, you know, uh, reaching onto your desk and picking up your keys. And you said, uh, hey, why are you picking up my keys? And they said, well, uh, you know, so and so needs it, needs your car. Or even if they said, well, the Lord needs it. Like, uh, no. That's not, that's not going to work. No, you can't do that, right? But it does. It all goes exactly like Jesus told them that it would. So how could Jesus do that? And I think what we've said, I think what it's showing us is that Jesus really is the king over everything. That he is sovereign over absolutely Everything that is, that He's the owner of everything. It really is all His. We're getting a glimpse into the reality that Jesus is the King of everything. You know, it makes me think of that—the uh, story. I think it's in Mark, or at least in Mark, uh, where the disciples are on the boat with Jesus. He's asleep, and that just crazy storm comes up, and the disciples are just terrified of the storm. Guys that grew up on the the sea, terrified of this storm. This is the biggest thing that they've seen, scared of it. Jesus wakes up and says, stop. And it stops. And the text says that they go from thinking, like, we're scared of that storm to, oh, my goodness. We are, who is this guy? The scariest thing we've ever seen just answered to this guy he 's the king there's nobody else like him. All right, so what does that mean for us? Look, I want to do a couple of very broad applications we're going We're going big and and deep and but really quick so uh, first, I think it means that we really are forced to respond to the fact that Jesus is king It means you got to you kind of just have to do something with that and so what do you do with that? That Jesus claims to be, and, and I would argue from the, from the Bible, proves himself to be king over everything. Well, if he's king over everything, that would include you and me. So where do you stand with that? Yeah, I think it's worth asking the question, who, has ultimate, who or what has ultimate authority in your life? Who gets the say-so over you? Because Jesus claims authority over it. Who gets the final word over, your, uh, over what you do with your time? Over what you do with your money? Over your sexuality? Over fill-in-the-blank? The Bible says that ultimate, Jesus is the ultimate king, and so it sort of forces us into the question, you either need to acknowledge it or disregard it, or but you have to do something with it. So what do you do with it? All right, the second sort of road I want to go down is this. If and since Jesus really is the sovereign king, if he's sovereign over everything, then that has to inform how we understand what happens to us and around us. If Jesus really is sovereign over everything, if he really is in control, then, then that means that things don't just happen. And now look, I get it. That, that probably brings up a ton of questions and maybe a lot of problems with you. And, and, and I get that, that's okay, I'd love to talk about that sometime. But I think it helps us in particular to begin to understand things like our suffering and the the tragedy that we experience, the the difficulties, the difficult things of life. I think it it at least helps us to begin to have some perspective on it. That if God, if and since God really is sovereign over everything, the the things that happen to us don't just happen by fate. They're not just... um, they don't happen by the whims of the universe or because of the, the will of, of other people even that they're actually overseen and under the direction of the King. And now look, again, I know that some of you might be thinking, well, I've had some bad stuff happen to me and I, I get that. And the, Couple things. One, the Bible is very clear that God is never the author of sin. He doesn't cause people to sin. But when, but even when bad things happen to us, I think this actually even helps us to understand it, it at least to have some perspective on it. Would you rather have it be that it's just that it has no meaning whatsoever? It just happened by fate, whatever. Or that it actually was somehow carefully overseen and orchestrated by the king. All right, now look, and this is going to be our next point, but I'm, a little preview here. Right now, that in and of itself may not be comforting. You've got to know what kind of king he is. and He's a good king. That's the next point. But I want you to think about this and this is going to lead us right into it. Jesus what what I think we're seeing in this text is that Jesus orchestrated everything about this, right? Well, if he's orchestrating everything, right? It was no accident. Well, what's about to happen? He's orchestrating what's about to happen, which is he's about to be falsely accused, arrested, put through a mock trial. And then abused, beaten, tortured, and killed. It's absolutely awful what he's orchestrated. And, right, it's absolutely beautiful what he's orchestrated. Because that very thing, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, is It's the worst thing that's ever happened in this world, and it is the greatest thing that's ever happened in this world. And Jesus was sovereign over it. All right, but secondly, we've got to see that Jesus is the caring, the compassionate king. Because like we just said, the fact that he's sovereign in and of itself, that, that, that may not be that comforting. But if it's coupled with the... the the character of the king that we see here than it really is. Look at verse 41, 41 and following. Luke is the only gospel to record this. So as Jesus is announcing and showing that, that he is king and he's riding towards Jerusalem, and he's coming down the Mount of Olives, the text tells us that he gets his first glimpse of the city. He gets that first sight of, of Jerusalem and he's overcome with emotion and the text says he weeps. Every commentator that I read uh, said, made it clear that this is not, this is not the word for just crying. Like how, uh, if you've been with us, you know, like, well, way cries sometimes in his sermons, right? Like get a little choked up, you know, we're okay. We move on. That's fair to call that crying. This is the word for, for weeping for what, what you and I might call like ugly crying, right? Just almost can't pull it together, wailing, sobbing. So why is he weeping? Well, verse 42 tells us that the city as a whole is hostile to him, hostile to God. And you have to keep in mind, this is Jerusalem. This is ground zero for for his people, the people that are supposed to, to love God the most, the people that he saved, the people that are... The people that should be absolutely in love with him. His prized possession. And and they reject him. He says that they, they don't recognize who he is, that he's come to save them. They don't understand what makes for peace. That they're 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 rebels, they're hostile. And as a result, Jesus knows that in the future, judgment's coming. That in about 35 to 40 years, in, in the year 8070, that because of their rejection of God, because of their consistent and persistent rejection of Him, that Rome is going to come in and just absolutely destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. Most everybody's going to die. It's just, it's going to be awful. He knows that's coming. And he weeps. For some reason, I, I feel like I have defaulted to thinking about this, sort of picturing this before I really studied it. And if I'd thought about it for half a second, I, I get this is a bad picture, but I, I'm going to guess you're kind of like me, maybe. that I kind of pictured this as, as Jesus almost saying, like in this, um, looking at Jerusalem and saying it in this tone of, of uh, I weep for you, Jerusalem. With this tone of like, but you disgust me. I weep for you, but you're pathetic. Almost like you see him like flick a cigarette, you know, and walk off. Because he's just done. But that's that's not the picture at all. Jesus is, like we said, just overcome with emotion. He's ugly crying because he cares. He's so moved about these people and they're, and they're the rebels. They're the ones that have rejected him. Uh, our family has been watching in the last, I don't know, last while uh, a show called Lone Star Law. Anybody seen that one, Lone Star Law? Uh, it's basically, if you remember the show Cops, you know, where they just follow police officers around. It's like cops for Texas game wardens. Now it might sound terrible, it's actually a really good show. So uh, we were watching it uh, not long ago, and there was a you know, little uh, clip. Uh, one of the game warden goes up and checks these two fishermen. That's what they do, you know, check for fishing licenses and you know, that sort of stuff. Says, hey, let me see your fishing licenses. They say, oh, well, we don't have them. And so the game warden says, well, that's actually up to a $400 ticket. But you know what, here's what I'm gonna do. If you promise to go, Right now, if you'll go and buy a fishing license for $11 for a one-day fishing license, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. If you promise to go do that and do it, hey, awesome. And so what do you think they said? Like, yeah, oh, great, thanks. Well, yeah, absolutely. So lets them off the hook, goes and buys, uh, you know, sends them off. Sorry? Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> off the hook unintentional pun fair enough so they agree all right so two hours later two hours later she's driving around game warden she's driving around and she says wait i think those are the same two people pulls over and says hey how's it going let's see those fishing licenses i assume you got them and they say uh not so much actually we no we they were too expensive so I'm watching the show. Miles is watching with me, you know, my oldest. And I, I said, I would, be, I've, I've, I would love to be a police officer, by the way. That's a whole nother deal. But look, I said, I would be so mad, right? I mean, wouldn't you? Like, you, did, you could have written them up, for, but you say, you know what? Hey, I'm letting you go. Go buy a fishing license. And they don't do it. I would have been so mad and I would have written every ticket I could think of and would have been totally glad about it because you're a moron. (laughs) And it wouldn't have been wrong. But Jesus looks at these people that have consistently rejected their king, that has graciously over and over and over shown them grace, And he looks at them, even in their rejection, and he doesn't do that. He weeps over them. He cares about them. So what does that mean for us? Well, look, we're going to go quick because it's going to overlap with our next point a a fair amount. But if if you are, if you find yourself right now to be a a rebel in some sense, in, in any sense, that you're one of those rebellious people. Maybe you're a believer and you know that you're you always struggle with rebelling against God to some degree. Or you're struggling maybe with a particular sin and you really just don't want to. You just don't want to go to God with that. You don't want to talk to Jesus about it. Maybe that's you or maybe maybe especially if you're not a believer and you're sort of in an active rebellion. Like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not interested. Don't care a thing in the world about that. I want, no, no matter where you fall in that, I want you to see that this is, this is the picture of the king. That the picture of the king, of God, is not the officer that can, that's just like waiting for you to mess up so I can write you that ticket. That just can't wait for you to do wrong. That's not the picture. It's one that that weeps over you because he cares about you, because he actually loves you. And then when you think about going to him, maybe going to the king in repentance and you think that what you might get is the uh, the king that looks and says, oh, really? So you did that again. So you got drunk again and so, now, and so now here you are. Now you're going to talk to me again like, oh, really? Or you did that again. And you expect the hammer to drop. I want you to see that you've got a compassionate king that weeps over you even in your rebellion. All right, thirdly and finally, I want you to see that Jesus is the working, restoring, and purifying king That's a terrible title to that point, but it'll be fine. Uh, Look at this last section. Uh, Last section starts in verse 45. Jesus enters the temple. And it says that he drives out those who sold. All right, so what's going on? Look, real quick. The temple, right? This is is where God's presence dwelt. This is what, you know, Graham talked about this uh, last week. Uh, Where God's presence dwelt. Dwelt in the, in the Holy of Holies, right there in the very, very middle of the temple where people would come, especially at Passover, which was when this was happening. People would come from all over. They would come and they would worship and you would need to um, offer a sacrifice. Well, if you've traveled, you need to buy an animal. Uh, you need to exchange your currency to offer your tithe and tax and all that. So there were, you, you had to, business had to be transacted somewhere. But evidently what was going on is that it was happening, and so the temple had a certain construction to it. Holy of holies, God's presence. Then you had the court of the Jews, where the Jewish men could worship. Sort of uh, concentric circles, almost, right? So the Jewish men could get closer. Outside of that was the court of, of women, which is where the Jewish women could go. But they couldn't go any further in. And then on the outside, the last sort of court, you had the court of the Gentiles. That's where if you were a Gentile, you weren't a Jew, but you believed in, in the one true God. Well, you could, you could come and worship, but you couldn't go any, that was the only place you could go. Couldn't go any further in. Well, evidently, the, the Jews that were transacting business had essentially just filled all that up with their, with their tables and their, their booths and things. So there was nowhere for the Gentiles to, to come and pray and worship. And Jesus comes and he sees that and he's just not going to have any of it. And so he drives them out. They're more worried about making money than worshiping God. And they're certainly not worried about the Gentiles, about other people. And so he physically overturns tables and drives them out. He makes room, he cleanses the temple, so to speak. Because Jesus knew that that it was really all about their relationship with God, that that was the most important thing. It was more important than making money. It, so Jesus wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't flying off the handle. He actually was loving, even loving everybody. Yes, he's obviously loving the Gentiles. He's making room for them. He's also loving those Jewish people. He's trying to show them, look, you care way more about making money than you do about worshiping. And that's bad for you. And I'm not going to let you do that. He went to work fixing the problem. Uh, Also, notice what he does in verse 47 says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Well, what was he teaching? Well, this is not on your bulletin. But the very next verse, which is chapter 20, verse one, says this as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Think about that. Put that with our previous point. Jesus is coming into the city that has, has rejected him. And he says, judgment is coming and he, and he weeps over it, but he doesn't just feel for them. What does he do? He shows up and he, he goes about the business day after day, hour after hour, of, of working to fix the problem of telling them, of preaching the good news to them these people that have rebelled against god that are going to kill him and there he is preaching good news to them and what's the good news well he's telling them all about how they could they can come to god and be saved Telling about their need and, and how salvation was in him and his work. This salvation really is for the rebellious. It's for the people that have rejected him. And it's actually not about your work, about you know, what you do and you know, do this, don't do this. It's all about what I've come to do. About what God has done for you. And look, let's, we're going to end with this. It's the same good news that you and I need. The good news that there is a king, and it's Jesus. That he's in charge of absolutely everything. That he's he's compassionate. That he's caring. That he loves you. And he loves you so much that he would give himself up for you. Because think about what's going to happen. Like we said earlier, Jesus orchestrated all this. And he orchestrates that he's going to go. He's going to take our sin on himself. He's going to go to the cross. And how's he going to die? What's he going to say over his head? King. And it's obviously supposed to be mocking him. This pathetic figure. And over his head it says. This is the king of the Jews. He's got a. You know, robe or hat, a robe on his back, a crown, right? Put a crown on him, a crown of thorns. They were mocking him. Oh, you're the king, the great king. But what's incredible is that they are exactly right. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of everything. And he put himself in our place to switch places with us. Why? Because what do we want more than anything else? I don't know about you. Or actually, no, I do know about you because I read the Bible. I know that you want the same thing I want, which is to be king. We're all built in God's image, which is, means that we are kingdom builders. The problem is I'm building my kingdom and you're building yours. And Jesus switches places with us. And that's the good news. The good news that we all need. is offered to us. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, that is wonderful news that you are in fact the King. Would you have mercy on us and forgive us and help us to see how we do not recognize and acknowledge and certainly don't love that you are the King? Would you work on us, change us? Uh, Be about the work of restoring and purifying us. And we ask it, Jesus, in your name, amen.